All right. Well, guys, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be back in Hebrews chapter 11 today. And so I would invite you to, uh, to open up and to follow along with us. Last week, we talked about eight core convictions that, uh, that drive faith and that help make faith real in our lives. I share with you um, these eight things. And I just want to kind of start today by running back through them real quick because we're going to see those throughout this, uh, this study of Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, I said that, that there was eight core convictions and... Uh, and they're found in the lives of these people who the Bible describes as great men and women of faith. Uh, the first core conviction is that God is real and he is real good. That, uh, that God's plan for our lives is for our good, that he works for our good. And he does so that flow, flows out of his character, which is good. And so when God allows things to happen in our lives, uh, we can trust him in, in the good days and in the bad days. The second thing we said was that God was sovereign, that he was all-powerful. Third was that God is the source of everything I need. Fourth, we said that God is always better. God's ways and God's will is always better than my own. So when I come to a choice that I've got to choose between my will and God's will, I'm always better to go with his. Uh, fifth, I said that God's word is trustworthy and true. So when God speaks to us, we can take it to the bank. When God says, this is what I'm about to do, then we can trust that God's going to carry out and fulfill the promises that he's made to us. Sometimes those promises take uh, a little time. Sometimes those promises take a lifetime. And other times those promises are going to take an eternity for God to fulfill. But you and I can rest assured that when God makes a promise, he will fulfill it. Six, we said that God is worthy of my whole heart, so I need to hold nothing back from him. So when, when God calls on me to surrender something to him, I can do so because he's good, because he's trustworthy, because his promises are true. I can give myself completely to him without holding anything back. The seventh thing was that God alone can fully satisfy my soul. Listen, if we believe that, it would change everything about our lives. If we believe that God and God alone would be the source of our satisfaction, then we would seek him more than we seek anything else in this world. We would trust him more than we trust anyone else in this world. And we would, we would pursue him more than anything else. And the final thing that we said was that heaven is our home. And so we need to live for the eternal and not just for this moment. We can get so caught up in the things of this world, get so caught up in, in all the stuff that's around us that we forget that there's so much more that God has waiting for us. Um, we define faith as being a, an obedient response to God's revelation, that faith always begins with God. And this is going to be critical as we go all the way through this study of faith because if we think that faith begins with me, if we buy into the notion that's out there today that I just need to think it and dream it and then ask God for it and God's got to give it to me, that's not biblical faith. Faith always begins with God. God reveals to us what he's about to do. And faith is our obedient response to what God has declared that he's about to do. So we looked at the examples. We talked about Noah, that Noah didn't say, hey, God, I got an idea. I think you should wipe everybody out except for me and my family. It was God's idea. It was God who came to Noah and said, this is what I'm about to do. And Noah, I want to bless you. I want to spare your family. So I need you to build a boat and I need you to, to obey me each step of the way. And Noah did so. But it began with God. Noah obediently responded. And the, the reward was that God allowed him to survive when others did not. 
There is a revelation from God, there is a response from us, and then there is reward that always follows that obedience. So in Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 11, we're going to look today at just a few verses, verses 17 through 22. About six verses that are going to describe four different guys that were all part of Abraham's family and how that they responded to God and what God did as a result of that. I want to read the passage to you and then we're going to come back and kind of break it down and, and look at some of the things that they did that serve as examples for you you and I in our life of faith. So in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, he goes back to Abraham. He's already talked about Abraham and Sarah believing God for this child, Isaac, and how that they trusted God and they, they waited upon God. And, and even though they got impatient and they jumped the gun, that God was faithful to keep his word and that God gave Sarah this child, Isaac. He was the child of promise that they waited for. Abraham was a hundred years old. Uh, Sarah was 90 when he was born. And God gave them this child. It was the fulfillment of God's promise. And it was through this child that God was going to bless them and create this nation that would be so numerous. They would be like the the stars of the sky and the the sand of the sea. And now we see a a real challenge for Abraham. let Let me read it. And then we're going to come back and talk about it. Because there's so much in this passage that I think we could dive into. And I want to be careful that we that we um just stay right where God wants us to today. So look at this. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's Abraham. Verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked. He asked God for future blessings on Jacob and Esau. That's Isaac, his son. By faith, Jacob, Isaac's son, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, which would be his grandchildren, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So here he's going to talk about these four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And he's going to talk about what they did and how that they um, surrendered themselves to God's plan and God's purpose. And it wasn't always in line with their plans and with their purpose. But again, these eight core convictions we can see as we, as we study their lives. If you want to read more about these four guys in, in the, the, the middle to the end of Genesis, it covers this, this span of time where these people are introduced to us, their lives are laid out for us, the challenges that they faced and, and the victories that they won, even the mistakes that they made are all laid out there. And it's a, it's a great read if you want to look at that and be encouraged in your life because we are a lot like them. We, we are given opportunities by God to exercise faith. We are given opportunities by God to follow him in obedience and to experience his reward. And sometimes we get it right. And many times we don't. And what we learn through their story is that even when they fail, God was faithful. And that gives us hope. That, they, that God comes to us and God lays out his plan and his purposes and what he's doing. And, and there are days that we're going to get it right and we're going to nail it, man. And we're going to go, man, this is it. This is what God said and this is how I responded and, and I nailed it. 
And there's going to be days where God says, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And we're going to fold our arms and go, yeah, I'm not real sure that I want to be a part of that. I think maybe the cost is too high. And I'm not sure that I want to, to go there. So what I want us to do is look at these four men today. And I want us to look at their lives and their story a little bit. And, um, and then draw some, some truths that we can apply to our lives that may help us in our walk with God. So if we, if we want to do this, I want to I kind of skip over Abraham and kind of wrap things up with him. So let's jump down to his son Isaac. Uh, in, in verse 20, it says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And so Isaac had these two sons, uh, uh, Jacob and Esau. They were twins. And if you remember the story back in Genesis, uh, these two were being born. Uh, they were tussling for, for, for power and, 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 and supremacy even in their mother's womb. Uh, Esau was born first, and then out came um, came uh, Jacob. And so uh, Isaac uh, has these, these two sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau is born first. He is due the birthright. But we remember the story of how he sold his birthright for this, this cup of stew. And then later on, when it came time for the father's blessing, for him to invoke God's blessings upon his children, which was a custom that was done back then that we've tended to lose in our day. Think about this for just a minute. What a powerful thing it would be. What a powerful thing it was back then for a father to speak a blessing over his child. Here, here we see in this, in this story that, that, that Abraham had the son Isaac. Isaac then has these twins, Jacob and Esau. And, and when they're born, God declares, here's, here's God's revelation at birth. The older will serve the younger. Customs of that day said that the older would, would get a double inheritance of, of, of everything, everything that the parents had, that the oldest would be entitled to a double portion. But Esau, being short-sighted and lacking faith, sells that right to have the double inheritance, and he gives it to his younger brother. And then at the end of life, when, 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 uh, when uh, Isaac is, is going blind and his sons are brought before him, it says in Scripture that, that Esau was always his dad's favorite, that Jacob was the mother's favorite. But, you know, they dressed up Jacob, and they brought him before his dad and, and preserved him the stew that his dad wanted and tricked the dad into giving that blessing. And the dad was upset that he had been tricked. But if we keep reading in that story, God got a hold of Isaac's heart and said, Isaac, this is what I intended all along. And before Isaac dies, he, 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 without grudge, gives his blessing to his younger child and says, you're going to be the one that God does this great work through. You're going to be the one that God's going to use to, to fulfill the promise that he has made. It was God's revelation. It happened at birth where God says, this is the way that it's going to be. This is the way I've decreed it. It wasn't till the very end of life that Isaac embraces that. And then speaks that blessing over Jacob. But here's what he's saying is that Isaac, at the end of life, took him a while to get there. But at the end of life, Isaac invokes, he asks God for the future blessings upon Jacob and Esau. The order of that is very important because the greater blessing was going to Jacob. The lesser blessing was going to Esau. But that was by God's design. And would God bless that? Would there be reward? Absolutely. Because through that lineage, God was going to bring the Messiah. 
And so we see this example of this, this father who wanted things to turn out one way. He wanted Esau to be that son that everything happened through. And yet God said, no, it's going to be different. And Isaac agrees, finally, and submits to God's plan and, and, and trusts God by faith that what God allowed to happen and what God decreed would happen would be best. Then it talks about Jacob. And he says, and Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Now, here's, here's what's happening. In, in each of these stories, you, you read the father blesses his sons, and he, he speaks blessings or cursings upon his children. And, and so now we get to this, this phrase that says, Jacob, when he was dying, blesses each of his grandsons, the sons of Joseph. So you know the story about Joseph, that he was, he was one of 12 sons that was born uh, to his parents. Uh, he, he, he grew up in a very, very dysfunctional family. His family kind of put the funk in dysfunctional. I mean, they were messed up. This is a family where, where they had 12 kids, uh, well, actually 13 kids. And, and of those, there's four different, four different mothers. And they're always jostling for power and for attention and for all the stuff that parents can give to their kids. And it's a messed up family. And the Bible says that, that in that family, Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved any others. Um, our Bible school week is going to be about the life of Joseph this week. And, and, and Joseph was the chosen. He was the favorite. His father gave him this coat of many colors that made him stand out among his brothers. And his brothers grew jealous. And you know the story. And one day the father sends him out to check on his brothers. And, and as he goes out, the brothers grab him and, and throw him in a pit. And they sell him off to Egypt. And you remember the rest of the story that he goes into Egypt and, and he goes there as a slave and it's not long before God blesses everything that he does. Everything he puts his hand to, God blesses. And he rises in power to become second in the, in the kingdom of Egypt. And then there's a famine back home with his family. His father was told that he was killed by wild animals. They took that robe and covered it in blood and told his dad that they found the robe, but the brother must be dead. And so his father thought, you, I've lost my son. Some of you have been through that. You know what that feels like and that, that loss and that pain. This father felt that. Jacob felt that pain. And then, toward the end of his life, he is reunited with his son Joseph. He finds out he wasn't really dead. He finds out what the, the brothers had done and, 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 and all the truth comes to the surface and this son that he thought was dead is now alive. As I was reading back through that story this week, I was, I was captured by this, this phrase where, where um, uh, Jacob says to Joseph, I thought I'd never see you again. I thought I'd lost you forever. And now I have you and your sons here before me. What a blessing and what a reward for him to remain faithful even through the crisis. To remain faithful even when he didn't understand how that God could take his favorite from him. And yet he trusted God's plan. He trusted God's purpose. And that blessing and that reward come there at the end. And so what's happened is Joseph has gone off to Egypt and, and he's separated from his family. His father thinks that he's dead. And while he's in Egypt, Joseph has two sons. Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh was born first. He was the oldest. Ephraim is the youngest. And so, again, the, the great blessing ought to go to the firstborn. And so here's Joseph. He hears that his father's about to die. He brings his, his children in to see his father for one last time. And, and, and 
And Jacob says, I, I want to bless your sons. Now, this is kind of interesting. He blesses Joseph's sons before he reads out what's going to happen to his own sons. But Joseph brings his boys in. And, and he says, I, I want to bless them. And, and, and he worships over the head of his staff, it says. But, but here he is weak. He's leaning on his staff, and he wants to bless his sons. And so they, they sit him down, and, and Joseph brings his sons to him. And, and, and he puts Manasseh on the father's right hand because that was the sign of power and blessing. And, and, and he expected the father to lay his hands on both of his son's heads, his grandsons. And, and so he, he sets them up on the right side so that this one is sure to get the father's blessing. But God's revealed to this grandpa that God's great work is not going to be done through Manasseh, but it's going to be done through Ephraim. And so right before they bow their heads for this blessing to be pronounced, the father crosses his arms and places his right hand on the younger and his left hand on the older. It doesn't sound like a lot to you and I, the right hand, left hand, what does it matter? It meant a lot in that day. It meant a lot in that time. When we read about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. It's all about that power and that authority and those blessings that are being given out. And so here we see all this taking place. And so they bring him before the, the, the grandfather to pronounce the blessings. And he arranges, Joseph arranges his sons just right. And then the father crosses his hands. And Joseph says, no, no, daddy. No, 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 no. You, you got it backwards. He's the oldest and he's the youngest. And he says, son, I know, I know. But this is what God's decreed. And he blesses those two boys. He blessed them based upon God's revelation, not his son's preference. He, based, he blessed him based upon God's revelation, not upon man's tradition, not upon the, the customs of that day. He was working in, in obedience with and cooperation with God. And he blesses those sons and he says to them, your two sons that I thought I would never ever have the opportunity to know, they will be given blessings in the promised land just like my own sons. And so when you look at the, the layout of the promised land and you look at all the tribes of Israel that are there, there you see Ephraim and, and Manasseh right in there with the mix of his own sons. So his grandsons are promoted in, in, in rank, if you will, equal with his sons. So Jacob, when he was dying, blesses the sons of Joseph, his grandsons. And he's bowing in worship over the head of his staff. He is faith-filled through his final days. This is the last thing he's going to do before he dies. And the last thing he does is still filled with faith that God's revelation is trustworthy and true. It's the last thing he's going to do. He goes out with his boots on. He goes out exercising faith. I said to you last week, when I die, that's the way I want to go. I want to go out living full of faith. I want to go out with my kids and my grandkids and maybe even great-grandkids if I live that long. But I want them to know that their Paul Paul was a man of faith. And that when God spoke, he listened and he built his life around what God revealed. In verse 22, we read about Joseph. This was that son that was sold off, went into Egypt. Brothers betrayed him, sent him off. Thought they'd never see him again. And then they're brought face to face through a famine face-to-face with their brothers. And Joseph has to make the choice of whether he's going to forgive or he's going to hold a grudge. Whether he's going to live in the past or he's going to trust that God was involved in all of those things. And the brothers are scared. And that famous line that Joseph spoke, 
you guys meant this for my harm. But God meant this for my good, that a nation could be spared. He says, God just sent me ahead. You guys thought y'all were doing it. It was God. And it wasn't easy and it wasn't fun. And I was a slave and, and, and then I was promoted and then I was demoted and thrown in prison. And then I was forgotten and, 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 and I never thought I'd see the, the light of day again. And then God not only brought me out, but God elevated me to a position that I could be used to spare a nation. So because of Joseph being in Egypt and because of, uh, of the visions that God gave him of the, the years of, of feast and then the years of famine, the, the nation of East Egypt did really, really well. And they survived that great famine. And, and, and that's how the people of God ended up down in Egypt. For 400 years, they would stay in Egypt. But Joseph still remembered the promise. He remembered that this was not going to be where the people of God dwelt forever. That Egypt was a temporary stopping off place. It was going to be 400 years. But, but that God was taking them back to the promised land. And so look what Joseph did as he is reaching the end of life. Verse 22, by faith Joseph at the end of his life. Literally it says, he speaks these words. He curls himself up and he breathes his last breath. Here's what he says. He says he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. Now think about this. They have just come to Egypt. And God says, you're going to be here for 400 years. And his dying words are, when God takes you back to the promised land, take me with you. I'm about to die. And, and, and this flesh will turn just to bones. But he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. How could he do that? Because he had faith in the word and the truth and the revelation of God. God had revealed to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and now to Joseph, this is what I'm about to do. I am creating a nation that will be great, a nation that will be known as my people. And, and I'm giving you this land. It's not yours yet, but you will one day possess it. And Joseph, as he dies, says to his sons, I'm dying with my eyes on the prize. I'll never see it myself, but you will. And when you see it, take my bones with you. When God sets you free and when God delivers you from this, this place called Egypt, you take me with you. He died full of faith. So what about Abraham? I mean, where, where did these guys learn that kind of faith? Where did the, the son and the grandson and the great-grandson, where did they learn to have that kind of faith? I think they learned it from their papa, Abraham. They learned it by watching Abraham. So what happened in Abraham that, 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 that brought about such great faith in his life? Well, from the very beginning, God was teaching Abraham to trust him more than all the gifts that God had given to Abraham. Abraham grew up in a, in a family that was doing quite well. And God shows up one day and says, Abraham, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your, your father, your mother, your family everything you know, and I want you to come follow me. Follow me to a place that, well, I'll show you. Let's go. It would be easy for Abraham to say, but, but God, I've got 
all this stuff. I, I've got all these ties. I've put down roots here. I've got a career here. I've got a family here. I've got parents to take care of here. I've got all these things that I need to be doing here. You've given me all of this. Let me take care of it. But he didn't. It says he got up. He packed up. And he followed God. He learned to value God more than the gifts of God. He always places God above the gifts. Abraham lived his life in a way that we need to learn to live our lives, or at least I need to learn to live mine. Maybe you're, you're already there. Here's how Abraham lived his life. With his arms lifted and wide open. You see, sometimes God gives us gifts, and, and here's what we want to do. It's mine. God, God gave me this child. God gave me this spouse. God gave me this wealth. God gave me this whatever. And, and, and now it's mine. I'm going to protect it, and I'm going to guard it because I've I got to be a good steward. I, I've got to protect it. That's my job. Abraham never lived this way. Abraham lived this way. Worshiping, but taking everything God gave him and holding it in open hands and saying, God, this is a gift you put in, and it's a gift you can take out. Now, that was put to the test, the scripture says, when Abraham was tested. It was tested when he was asked to leave his father's homeland. Okay. All right. Men grow up, and sometimes they leave their family. For some, that's harder than others. But that was a test. They, there were tests all along the way that was building to this moment that was about to take place in, in Abraham's life. All these little things that we see, when they go into a new land and Abraham is tested, are you going to stand up and be the man and trust God to protect your family? Or are you going to lie and tell your wife to say, hey, look, I, I'm his sister. Sometimes Abraham got it right. Sometimes Abraham got it wrong. When God says, I'm going to give you a child, are you going to trust God that he's going to give you a child through your wife? Or are you going to try to come up with a scheme to be able to make a child of your own? He got it wrong. But God remained faithful. It's not that we get it perfect and so God just pours out blessings. It's, it's even in our failures that, that God steps in. Even in our, in our biggest blunders, God steps in and he, he changes us. He builds our faith. He strengthens us and helps make us something that we weren't yesterday. And so here's Abraham. Now he's being tested. And this is going to be the, probably the greatest test of Abraham's life. Understand, this is not his first test. But it's the culmination, if you will, of all these other tests. He's waited 100 years for this promised child to be given to him. He's waited and waited and, and, and believed and trusted. And month after month, the pregnancy test comes back negative. And then one day, God shows up and says, this time next year, you're going to be holding a baby boy in your arms. And it happened just like God said. Don't you know that after a hundred years of waiting, when that baby was placed in his hands... He thought, this is the promised child. This is the one that everything God's been talking about is going to flow through. This is, I've got to protect him. I've got to guard him. I've got to do everything just right because this is the promised child. 
And then we read the story. We're not told exactly how old Isaac is. But guys, he's, he's, he's got to be pushing teenage years or older. Because when they go up that mountain, God says to Abraham, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice your son. Your only son. Ishmael's already gone. He's out of the house. Been sent away. Your only son. They cut the wood. They load the donkeys. They take the servants and the fire and the sword. And they go up this hill. And when they get to the place that God's revealing to them, he leaves the servants and the donkeys and he puts the wood on his son's back. This is not an infant. This is a boy big enough to carry a load of wood on his back. This is a son that that Abraham has walked with. This is a son that, that, that since he held him in his arms the first time, he has told him, you are it. You are the future of our nation. You are the one who God's going to do this great work through. He has, he has spoken blessing. He has spoken God's word. He has made it clear to his son that you are the one that God's going to, 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 to bring a nation through. You're the one. And now they take this trip. The son's old enough to carry the wood. He's also old enough to know that when you offer a sacrifice, you have the wood, the fire, the knife, but you also have a lamb. Dad, I think we forgot something. What? Where's the lamb? I mean, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, we've got the knife, but but where's the sacrifice? How can you have a sacrifice without the animal? And Abraham says something that just blows me away. He says this, this is his faith. Son, God will provide. God will provide the lamb. I don't see one. God will provide. All right, Dad, if you say so. Isaac had learned at this point, by this point in his life, that when Dad says, God said, You can take that to the bank. Even if it didn't look right or make sense or seem rational. My daddy walks with God. And when daddy says, God says, I'm okay with that. There's also something that that runs through my mind. And and, and the Bible doesn't answer it. And and I don't know that there is an answer. But how does a hundred-year-old man catch and bind a teenage boy when you're about to slay him. I mean, seriously. I think there's some faith involved here on Isaac's part as well. I think that if you get to that mountain and you build this altar and Abraham says, hey, come here, boy, we're going to tie you up and set you on the, on, on the deal. Any teenage boy without a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit takes off and says the old man has lost it and I'm not about to die. But somehow, and the Bible doesn't tell us how, somehow he is bound and he is placed upon that altar And his dad, he watches his dad take that knife. Because Abraham loved the giver more than the gift. 
Think about that. What would Sarah say? What would the neighbor say? What would anybody say about a man who waited a hundred years to hold a baby in his arms and then he takes off on a three-day journey and sacrifices that child that he's claimed is going to be the child that a nation is going to be born from? Abraham had to work through all these things. I think sometimes we just we read the story and we go, oh yeah, that's, I'm hearing a story, yeah, I did this, and then, then God gave an animal and everything was cool. Yeah. We don't enter into the story and feel the struggle that this father must have had to see the struggle that this child must have had as his eyes grow big and his dad draws that knife. That's enough to make you want to turn against your father's faith. But Isaac doesn't. There, there's... We need to enter into this drama and feel what's going on. And so Abraham is tested. There there was a revelation. Here's what what I'm asking you to do, Abraham. And Abraham gets up early the next morning, cuts the wood, loads the donkey, grabs his son, grabs the fire, grabs the knife, gets a couple servants, and they take off on this three-day journey, three days to change his mind. And he doesn't. How could he do that? How could he do that of the son through whom Isaac will be your, your through, through, through Isaac your, off, your offspring will be named? How could he do it? Verse 19 tells us. He considered that God was able. How did he wait a hundred years to have a child? He considered that God was able. How did he leave his father's homeland and just take off following God through the desert? He considered that God was able. And here he is again, considering that God was able. Able to do what? Able to raise his son from the dead. To my knowledge, this is the first time that that a resurrection is even mentioned in Scripture. There are so many tie-ins here to to what we see fulfilled in the New Testament with, with, with God offering his only son. With the promise of a resurrection. There's so many ways that we see this story of Abraham and Isaac in in the picture of the father sending his son and his son willingly going to die. But Abraham considers, he, he was convinced that God was able to raise his son from the dead. And then the author writes, from which, figuratively speaking, he did. He was at the point of death, and God gave him back to his father. How did Abraham do that? Because he loved the giver more than he loved the gift. God has blessed you and I with so many things. Some of you have been given the great blessing of children. God has given you those children, and you know those children are a blessing from God. Even when they get it wrong, and even when they mess up, you know in your heart, this child is a gift from God. We've been given parents that we love, and we know that that was a gift from God. It wasn't something that we picked out. It wasn't something that we earned. It was a gift from God. But we've been given these gifts And as we look at our gifts, it's tempting sometimes to value the gift more than the giver. 
God gives us a gift. And sometimes we value that gift more than we value God who gave it to us. God gives us great parents. And sometimes we value the opinion of our parents more than we do the approval of God. God gives us great spouses. Great gift. And sometimes we, if we're not careful, can value our spouses more than we value God. Place their opinion above God's opinion, their dreams above God's dreams, their demands over God's demands. And we can get that out of balance, out of priority. God gives us children. And sometimes we place our children and their dreams and their desires above God's plans for those children. I thought a lot about this this week. We've got so many people who say, oh, my child is so gifted in athletics. I mean, it just, just seems natural. And I'm going to sign them up for this team and this team and this team and this team. And, and, and our whole year's calendar is going to be planned out with athletics because my kid's gifted. And, and they are the next whatever. Baseball, softball, volleyball. Soccer, you, you name it. And it's easy to make that child our number one problem. I'm going to give my child everything I never had. I'm going to take my child to every sporting event. I'm going to introduce my child to all these heroes of that sport. I'm going to do all these things so that my child has the advantage. And it's easy to place our child above God. My child's gifted, so they're gifted in athletics, okay? And athletics can teach them discipline. Yes, it can. But athletics can't make them a disciple. Athletics can teach them teamwork, but not how to build the kingdom and to do kingdom work. Oh, my child loves to dance. I mean, and there's such beauty and grace and and, and all that, and... We can have the beauty, but lack the heart for God. They can be graceful, but not grace-filled. My child is smart, intellectual, and I'm, I'm just giving them all these opportunities to, to, to do all these intellectual things. And they can have all the knowledge in the world and still not know Jesus. It scares me when I talk to parents who say things like this. Well... Yeah, we're, we're really busy, and, and every weekend we're somewhere else, but you know, you only get one shot at this. You've got to get it right as a parent. And I'm like, yes, listen to what you just said. What is the most important thing for your child? It's knowing Jesus. And when something else takes priority over that, then we've got it backwards. When we value the gift more than the giver, then we've made an idol out of that gift. And we need to back up and look at it again. What are we teaching our kids when we elevate them above God? Their desires above God's desires. What are we saying to them when we, when we love their gifts more than we love the one who gave them those gifts? 
And what are we communicating to our kids? When we teach them to find their, their pure joy, their satisfaction, even their identity in their accomplishments more than in their God. What are we saying when we tell them that we're more proud of them for winning a game or a competition than losing themselves in serving others? You see, if, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll miss what Abraham did that we need to be doing. And that is to, to, to always place God above the gift. So here's Abraham. He's, he's got this gift in his hands. He's got this son that, that God has made promises that, that through this son, great things are going to happen. And now he's got to choose between whether he hangs on to that gift or he hangs on to his God. That was the real test of his faith. And Abraham goes up that hill with his son, builds the altar. Stacks the wood, binds his son, and lays him on the altar and demonstrates to God that God is more important than the gift. God is more important than the gifts. You say, how do I teach my child that? You've got to model it for him. It's not the words that we speak. It's the life that we lead, the way that we live. We need to ask ourselves, do, we, do, 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 do you love me, God says, more than you love your parents? He asked Abraham that. Abraham, are you going to love me more than your parents? Abraham says yes, then God says, okay, then I'll be a father to you. Do, do you love your land more than you love me? No, Lord. All right, I've got a land that's even better for you. Do you love your people more than you love me? No, Lord. Well, I'm going to make of you a great people, so numerous that no one can count. Abraham, do you trust me more than you trust what you're holding in your hands right now? I'll give you more, Abraham, than you can ever count. Do you trust me more than what you can see with your eyes? Then I'll give you more than your eyes can take in in, in one long glance. Do, do you love me more than what you can reason in your mind? Then Abraham, I'll give you more than you can ever imagine. Abraham, do you love me more than the evidence suggests? then I'll show you, Abraham, that there's nothing too hard for your God. These are men of faith who walked with God. It didn't all happen in one day. It was a lifetime to get there. Some were early to the party and some were late. But they all got there. And these all died in faith. Abraham died knowing that not only did God give him that son, but God gave him back that son. Why? Because he loved God more than the gift. So what gift has God given you that you've reversed that? What, God is, what, what gift has God given to you that you've elevated above God and, and now that gift is your idol? It's what drives your decisions. It drives all that you do. 
Because today's a day that we can repent of that and we can say, Lord, I need to get this back in line. I need to get this back in, in focus. Where, where do you find your identity? Is it in your job? Is it in being a parent, being a child? Our identity is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And when that's the case, we value God more than the gift. And we worship God with open hands that say, Lord, you can drop anything you want into my life and you can take anything out that you want to take out. Because, Lord, it all came from you, it all belongs to you, and it's all coming back to you. I can't imagine being Abraham and being asked to sacrifice one of my children. I I just can't. My mind can't go there. But I think I better understand this week that the only way that Abraham could do that was that he loved God more than he loved that gift. And that's the way I want to live. And that's the way we all should live because that's what it means to live a life of faith. To love God more than you love the gifts that God gives to you. And that means that if the gifts are taken away, Glory to God. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Praise be his name, said Job. That's the way we need to live. Listen, if, if you're living for the gift, and, and the gift goes, guess what? So does the rest of your life. But if you're living for God, and those gifts disappear, then you can say what Job said. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. But praise be the name of the Lord. Everything in this world comes and goes. There's one thing that remains, and that's the Lord. Let's build our lives upon him, okay? Let's pray.